Chapter Thirteen of Some American Storytellers by Frederick Tabor Cooper. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Thirteen, Frank Norris. It is barely a decade since Frank Norris was putting the final touches to the volume which was destined to be his last novel and clarifying his ideas upon literature and life in a series of essays entitled salt and sincerity there have been so many changes in american fiction during these intervening ten years so many younger reputations have waxed and waned that the work of norris taken as a whole has been thrown into an unjust and misleading remoteness we are apt to think of him as belonging to a bygone generation as an influence which after showing a brief potentiality suddenly withered once and for all as a matter of fact norris's influence has never for an hour been dead in a quiet persistent way it has spread and strengthened leavening all unsuspectedly the maturer work of many of the writers who have since come into prominence and the best way in which to realize the nearness of norris in point of time and of spirit as well as the dormant strength which his early death prevented from ever fully awakening is to glance back and briefly consider some of the conditions of american fiction at the time when he began to write during the closing years of the nineteenth century or to be more specific from eighteen ninety seven to nineteen hundred two the period of norris's activity there were easily a score of new writers who leaped suddenly into prominence on the strength of a single book the volumes that come casually to mind and may be regarded as fairly representative are winston churchill's richard carville robert herrick's gospel of freedom mrs wharton's the greater inclination booth tarkington's gentleman from indiana brand whitlock's thirteenth district george horton's long straight road theodore dreiser's sister carrie morgan robertson's spun yarn harry leon wilson's the spenders owen wister's the virginian jack london's son of the wolf the list might be stretched to twice the length in glancing over this array of names the various associations and contrasts they offer strike one to-day as exceedingly odd certain of these reputations seem now curiously stunted certain others loom up unexpectedly large but in spite of the unforeseen readjustments that time has wrought the significant fact remains that norris in his lifetime dwarfed them all at the time of the appearance of the octopus and the pit there was not a single volume produced by this younger group with the possible exception of the virginian that even approached them in breadth of view or bigness of intent and when we measure the ten years growth in individual cases when we compare the promise of the gospel of freedom or the greater inclination with the accomplishment of together or the house of mirth then the fact is suddenly forced home to us how much greater growth that same ten years would have shown in the best craftsman and the bravest biggest soul of them all one realizes now that even in his last and maturest books norris had not fully found himself that he was still in the transition period still groping his way tirelessly undauntedly toward self-knowledge he had adopted the creed of naturalism ardently refashioning it to suit the needs of a younger cleaner civilization a world of wider expanses purer air freer life and even while he wrought he witnessed the apparent downfall of that very creed in the land of its birth saw its disintegration beneath the hands of its chief champion it is impossible to read norris's works without perceiving that from first to last there was within him an instinct continually at war with his chosen realistic methods an unconquerable and exasperating vein of romanticism that led him frequently into palpable absurdities not because romanticism in itself is a literary crime but because it has its own proper place in literature and that place is assuredly not in a realistic novel 
how this inner warfare would eventually have worked out what compromises innovations iconoclasms would have paved the way to full maturity of accomplishment it is of course impossible now even to guess but one thing is certain norris would have found that way and when found it would have proved not merely big rugged compelling but also clean as the opened wind-swept spaces that he loved and fine as gold that has no dross the expressed views of any novelist on the principles of his art have a value far out of proportion to their critical acumen we may agree or not with marion crawford's the novel what it is or with maupassant's preface to pierre et jean with zola's roman experimental or the art of fiction by henry james their principles may be quite right or quite wrong the important fact in each case is that they have betrayed to us the principles in accordance with which they themselves wrought they have given us penetrating searchlights into the secrets of their methods the sources of their strength and their weakness this is why in a critical examination of the writings of frank norris his collected essays entitled the responsibilities of the novelist not only cannot be ignored but form the natural and obvious starting-point it is well to add quickly that these essays will serve merely as a starting-point and nothing more if they were the measure of norris's value if they represented not only what norris believed that he was trying to do but what he actually succeeded in doing he would be of considerably lesser magnitude and his influence would have ended long before this they are exceedingly uneven some of them revealing a surprisingly deep and far-reaching understanding of the methods and purposes of serious fiction while others again show nothing excepting certain curious personal limitations a sort of mental astigmatism in a number of them such as a problem in fiction one feels that norris was not so much telling the general public the views that he had long and clearly held but rather that he was making interesting exploration trips into his own mind and trying by a tour de force to reconcile the contradictory instincts and impulses that he encountered there it may be said in passing that these essays contain some curiously bad writing to come from the pen possessing the strength and brilliance and lyric quality of norris at his best it seems almost as though he were saying this is not my real work it is only a side issue i cannot stop to worry about form and style all i want to do is to convey the idea with sufficiently comprehensible journalistic fluency i am in a hurry to get back to my new big novel the biggest and the best i have ever done this was quite literally norris's attitude towards fiction in general and his own in particular the novel to him was the literary form of supreme importance the most potent and far-reaching the pulpit the press and the novel these indisputably are the great moulders of public opinion and public morals to-day but the pulpit speaks but once a week the press is read with lightning haste and the morning news is waste-paper by noon but the novel goes into the home to stay it is read word for word it is talked about discussed its influence penetrates every chink and corner of the family how necessary it becomes then for those who by the simple art of writing can invade the heart's heart of thousands whose novels are received with such measureless earnestness how necessary it becomes for those who wield such power to use it rightfully is it not expedient to act fairly is it not in heaven's name essential that the people hear not a lie but the truth such was norris's firm conviction regarding the modern novel an instrument of vast and at times dangerous power 
and the novelist's responsibility he looked upon as a solemn trust he had only scorn for writers who shifted and spun around like weathercocks to meet the wind of popular favor and he insisted that the true reward of the novelist the reward that could not be taken away from him was to be able to say at the close of his life i never truckled i never took off the hat to fashion and held it out for pennies by god i told them the truth they liked it or they didn't like it what had that to do with me i told them the truth i knew it for the truth then and i know it for the truth now the essay on the novel with a purpose is the sanest wisest most important chapter in this volume it shows how thoroughly norris understood the principles of epic structure in fiction how faithfully he had learned the one big lesson that zola had to teach and how wisely he had taken to heart the warning contained in the great frenchman's later blunders the novelist's purpose is to his story what the keynote is to the sonata though the musician cannot exaggerate the importance of the keynote yet the thing that interests him is the sonata itself in like manner the purpose in a novel is important to the author only as a note to which his work must be attuned the moment that the writer becomes really and vitally interested in his purpose his novel fails and norris proceeds to illustrate this strange anomaly by imagining hardy writing a sort of english germinal setting forth the wrongs of the welsh coal-miners it is conceivable that he could write a story that would make the blood boil with indignation but he himself if he is to remain an artist if he is to write his novel successfully will as a novelist care very little about the iniquitous labour system of the welsh coal-miners it will be to him as impersonal a thing as the key is to the composer of a sonata now all this is absolutely right indeed so simple and elemental an axiom of structure that one wonders why at the close of the nineteenth century it was still necessary to put it into words at all why it was that even the unthinking general reader could not feel instinctively the fatal inferiority of mrs humphrey ward to zola the inferiority for that matter of all the frenchman's work subsequent to le docteur pascal to almost all his work preceding it yet as a matter of fact even norris himself did not perceive this truth in its fullness until after the appearance of fecondite he had not seen how far astray zola had already drifted in paris he did not see that he himself in the octopus was being drawn into the same disastrous current but he did see later in time to show in the pit the dawn of a new light and that is why the following quotation is not merely a reiteration of the point already made about hardy and the welsh miners but has an interest all its own quote, do you think that mrs stowe was more interested in the slave question than she was in the writing of uncle tom's cabin her book her manuscript the page-to-page progress of the narrative were more absorbing to her than all the negroes that were ever whipped or sold had it not been so that great purpose novel never would have succeeded consider the reverse fecondite for instance the purpose for which zola wrote the book ran away with him he really did not care more for the depopulation of france than he did for his novel result sermons on the fruitfulness of women special pleading a farrago of dry dull incidents overburdened and collapsing under the weight of a theme that should have intruded only indirectly it is rather painful to turn from the broad sanity of views like these views that norris arrived at through his intellect to certain others that he reached through his emotions such for instance as his views upon romantic fiction 
if we have ever had a writer in this country who owes every last atom of importance that is in him to the realistic creed that writer is frank norris and for that reason it sounds like the basest kind of ingratitude to find him speaking of that harsh loveless colourless blunt tool called realism the plain truth is that norris never understood in any of their accepted senses the meaning of the terms romance and realism at the time when a man's woman was still running serially in the san francisco chronicle and the new york evening sun norris said in a letter to a critic who had objected to his exasperating vein of romanticism for my own part i believe that the greatest realism is the greatest romanticism and i hope some day to prove it in a plea for romantic fiction he gave the following topsy-turvy irrational irresponsible definition Quote, romance i take it is the kind of fiction that takes cognizance of variations from the type of normal life realism is the kind of fiction that confines itself to the type of normal life according to this definition then romance may even treat of the sordid the unlovely as for instance the novels of m zola zola has been dubbed a realist but he is on the contrary the very head of the romanticists now norris might just as well have defined white as that pigment which we use to paint the rare and precious things of life and black as that which we choose for all common everyday things cups and saucers table linen wheelbarrows and cobblestones shoe polish he might have added is generally considered black but really it is the most dazzling of all possible varieties of white this sort of thing is definition run mad arrant nonsense leading nowhere there are several perfectly legitimate definitions of the two chief creeds in fiction any one of which norris might have adopted any one of which would have been intelligible to the public at large there is for instance that very simple distinction drawn by marion crawford making realism a transcript of life as it is and romance of life as we would like it to be but norris is right in one thing realism and romance do exist side by side everywhere and all the time where he missed the truth is in this that the difference between the two is not one of material fact of a different series of episodes but simply of a different attitude of mind two people can look at a sunset and one of them may say with what magic trickery has nature's brush decked out the heavens with a new and marvellous colour scheme and the other may with equal right reply the refraction of solar radiation through a finely attenuated aqueous vapour does produce some rather pretty effects you have a perfect right to go into raptures over the infinite power of creation which produced niagara falls but the man who didn't see what prevented the water from tumbling over was equally within his rights and he was a pretty good realist water itself may be looked at romantically as the god neptune or realistically as h two o and if you cannot see that the chemical fact is the greater wonder of the two then there is no use in trying to convert you frank norris was of the number of those whom it was hopeless to try to convert he could not or would not understand that while a novelist has a perfect right to look upon life either literally or imaginatively he has not the right to do the two things simultaneously there is a character presented almost at the outset of the octopus a poet by the name of presley who admirably illustrates the chief shortcoming of norris's work he is haunted by the dream of writing an epic of the west his ambition is to paint life frankly as he sees it yet incongruously enough 
he wishes to see everything through a rose-tinted mist a mist that will tone down all the harsh outlines and crude colours of actuality he is searching for true romance and instead finds himself continually brought up against the materialism of railway tracks and grain elevators and unjust freight tariffs all this is of interest to us not because presley is an especially important or convincing character but because he is so obviously introduced as a means of stating once again the author's topsy-turvy theory that realism and romanticism are convertible terms and that the epic theme for which presley is vainly groping lies all the time close at hand could he only see it not merely in the primeval life of mountain and of desert the shimmering purple and gold of a sunset but in the limitless stretch of steel rails the thunder of passing trains the whole vast intricate mechanism of organized monopoly now of course there is an epic vastness and power in many phases of our complicated modern life and the only possible way in which to handle them adequately is by using a huge stretch of canvas and blocking them in with broad sweeping zolaesque brush strokes but epic vastness has no logical connection with romanticism its very essence lies in some huge all-pervading symbolic figure some personified idea seen vaguely in the background behind a closely woven web of human actualities here and there it may be the seeds of romance will take root and spring up in spite of all precaution like tares among the wheat and they are inevitable in the case of a writer who like norris has a tender indulgence for the tares this was his pet failing his besetting sin a curious paradox when one stops to consider how wonderfully clear the greater part of the time his vision was he knew in his inmost soul that what counts most in honest workmanship is fidelity to life the real actual life as it is lived day by day by average commonplace human beings it still remains true he once wrote that all the temperament all the sensitiveness to impressions all the education in the world will not help one little little bit in the writing of a novel if life itself the crude the raw the vulgar if you will is not studied and in this respect he practised what he preached studying the crude the raw the vulgar doggedly adhering to the blunt truth never softening or palliating a thought where he conceived it essential to the fidelity of his picture occasionally his very imagery verged upon coarseness as where he described the ships along the city's waterfront their flanks opened their cargoes as it were their entrails spewed out in a wild disarray of crate and bale and box and what magic effects this fearlessness of words produced how prodigiously norris succeeded in making us see there have been few novelists who could vie with him in the ability to sketch the physiognomy of some mean little side street in san francisco to picture with a few telling strokes some odd little chinese restaurant to make us breathe the very atmosphere of mcteague's tawdry disordered creosote-laden dental parlour or the foul reeking interior of bennett's tent on the ice-fields of the far north and yet every now and again this same acute clear-visioned writer would perversely sacrifice not only truth but even very similitude for the sake of a melodramatic stage effect even at the risk of an anticlimax worthy of dickens as mr howells has characterized the closing scene in mcteague when a friend once expostulated with norris for the gross improbability of that chapter in which a murderer fleeing from justice into the burning heat of an alkali desert carries with him a canary that continues to sing after thirty-six hours without food or water 
he frankly admitted the absurdity but said that he had been unable to resist the temptation because the scene offered such a dramatic contrast besides he added whimsically i compromised by saying that the canary was half dead anyhow norris's debt to zola already referred to is too obvious to have need of argument everywhere from his earliest writings to his last in one form or another it stares us in the face compelling recognition like zola his strength lay in depicting life on a gigantic scale portraying humanity in the mass like zola he could not work without the big underlying idea the dominant symbol in mcteague the symbol is gold the most fitting emblem he could devise to personify the state of california the whole book is flooded with a shimmer of yellow light we see it in the floating golden disk that the sunlight through the trees casts upon the ground in the huge gilded tooth of the densest sign in the lottery prize which trina wins in the polish jew zirkoff the man with the rake groping hourly in the muck-heap of the city for gold for gold for gold in the visionary golden dishes of maria macapa's diseased fancy a yellow blaze like fire like a sunset and again in the hoarded coins on which trina delighted to stretch her naked limbs at night in her strange passion for money the coins which finally lured mcteague and his enemy to their hideous death in the alkali desert in the epic of the wheat as we shall see more specifically when we come to examine the octopus in detail the central symbol had become an even vaster more relentlessly dominant element a single state no longer satisfied him what he wanted was a symbol which would sum up at once american life and american prosperity his friends are still fond of telling of the day when he came to his office trembling with excitement incapacitated for work his brain seething with a single thought the trilogy of the wheat i have got a big idea the biggest i ever had was the burden of all he had to say for many a day thereafter another obvious debt that norris owed to the creator of la rougeau macquart is his style the swing and march of phrase and sentence the exuberant wealth of noun and adjective the insistent iteration with which he develops an idea expanding and elaborating and dwelling upon it forcing it upon the reader with accumulated synonym and metaphor driving it home with the dogged persistence of a trip-hammer here is a passage which brief as it is admirably illustrates this quality Quote, outside the unleashed wind yelled incessantly like a sabbath of witches and spun about their pitiful shelter and went rioting past leaping and somersaulting from rock to rock tossing handfuls of dry dust-like snow into the air folly-stricken insensate an enormous mad monster gambling there in some hideous dance of death capricious headstrong pitiless as a famished wolf and again in accordance not only with zola but with the entire continental school of realism norris delights in dwelling upon the physical side of life with the exception of the pit the characters in his books are none of them possessed of an over-refinement of sentiment they are normal human beings with a healthy animality about them rugged rough-hewn men and dauntless self-sufficient women he dealt by preference with primitive natures dominated by single passions his favorite heroes are cast in a giant mould big of bone and strong of sinew with square-cut heads and a salient prognathous jaw such was captain kitchell in moran of the lady letty such also was mcteague Quote, a young giant carrying his huge shock of blond hair six feet three inches from the ground 
moving his immense limbs heavy with ropes of muscle slowly ponderously his hands were enormous red and covered with a fell of stiff yellow hair his head was square-cut angular the jaw salient like that of the carnivora bennett also in a man's woman is of the same brotherhood Quote, his lower jaw was huge almost to deformity like that of a bulldog the chin salient the mouth close-gripped the great lips indomitable brutal the forehead was contracted and small the forehead of men of single ideas and the eyes too were small and twinkling one of them marred by a sharply defined cast in dealing with women it was norris's wont to paint pleasanter pictures but here too he dwelt mainly on physical attributes he never wearied of describing their features the colour of their hair and eyes the fragrance of their neck and arms their whole sweet personality it is curious to see what a fascination woman's hair seems to have had for norris it fairly haunted him like an obsession he dwelt upon it constantly lingeringly it is the one great charm of each and all of his heroines they are forever smoothing it braiding it putting it up or down it enters into and lends colour to their every mood moran sternison has an enormous mane of rye-coloured hair which whipped across her face and streamed out in the wind like streamers of the northern lights travis bessemer in blix trim and trig and crisp as a crack yacht also has yellow hair not golden nor flaxen but plain honest yellow sweet yellow hair rolling from her forehead lloyd seawright in a man's woman has auburn hair a veritable glory a dull red flame that bore back from her face in one grand solid roll dull red like copper or old bronze thick heavy almost gorgeous in its sombre radiance even small delicate anemic trina mcteague has heaps and heaps of blue-black coils and braids a royal crown of swarthy bands a veritable sable tiara heavy abundant odorous all the vitality that should have given colour to her face seemed to have been absorbed by this marvellous hair but it is not alone the redolence of woman's hair on which norris likes to dwell his pages diffuse a veritable carnival of odours mcteague's dental parlours give forth a mingled odour of bedding creosote and ether in blix the chinese quarter suggests sandalwood punk incense oil and the smell of mysterious cookery here again is the fragrance of the country in midsummer Quote, during the day the air was full of odours distilled as it were by high noon the sweet smell of ripening apples the fragrance of warm sap and leaves and growing grass the smell of cows from the nearby pastures the pungent ammoniacal suggestion of the stable back of the house and the odour of scorching paint blistering on the southern walls and as a companion piece to the foregoing here is an unsavoury little paragraph giving a glimpse of the starving occupants of a wind-buffeted tent in the arctic regions a paragraph redeemed only by the dramatic suggestion of the closing words Quote, the tent was full of foul smells the smell of drugs and of mouldy gunpowder the smell of dirty rags of unwashed bodies the smell of stale smoke of scorching sealskin of soaked and rotting canvas that exhaled from the tent cover every smell but that of food 
one does not have to read far into norris before discovering the strong underlying note of primevalism in him the undisguised delight that he took in pointing out that in spite of our boasted civilization la bête humaine is still rather close to the surface our veneer of conventionalism sadly thin he welcomed eagerly the nature revival in literature mr seaton and his school opened a door opened a window and more literature has given place to life the sun has come in and the great winds and the smell of the baking alkali on the arizona deserts and the reek of the tarweed on the colorado slopes and nature has become a thing intimate and familiar and rejuvenating in his own books he preferred wherever possible to isolate his men and women to get them away from the artificiality of pink teas and ballrooms and set them face to face with the open sky and their own passions he delighted in the great reach of the ocean floor the unbroken plain of the blue sky and the bare green slope of land three immensities gigantic vast primordial scenes wherein the mind harks back unconsciously to the broad simpler basic emotions the fundamental instincts of the race he was nearly always at his best when describing the elemental unchanging aspects of nature the golden eye of a tropic heaven the unremitting gallop of unnumbered multitudes of grey-green seas the remorseless scourge of the noon sun in the desert waste of death valley where the very shadows shrank away hiding under sage bushes and all the world was one gigantic blinding glare silent motionless better than any of these is the following picture of the limitless desolation of the arctic ice-fields in front of the tent and over a ridge of barren rock was an arm of the sea dotted with blocks of ice moving silently and swiftly onward while back from the coast and back from the tent and to the south and to the west and to the east stretched the illimitable waste of land rugged grey harsh snow and ice and rock rock and ice and snow stretching away there under the sombre sky forever and forever gloomy untamed terrible an empty region the scarred battlefield of chaotic forces the savage desolation of a prehistoric world such in brief are the materials and the methods of norris's art as a novelist big words big phrases big ideas an untrammelled freedom of self-expression he could not be true to himself if hampered by a narrow canvas that is why it is as incongruous to look to frank norris for short stories as it would be to set a rodin to carving cherry pits or a vera Schagen to tinting lantern slides yet it does not follow that the short tales rescued from the magazine files and collected under the title a deal in wheat were not worth preservation on the contrary they are full of keen interest to the student of fiction no one but norris could have written them every page testifies to the uncrushable vitality of the man but to call them short stories is to misname them they impress one as fragments rather splendid fragments trials of the author's strength before he launched forth upon more serious work take for instance the opening story which gives the title to the volume it was palpably written for practice a sort of five-finger exercise in preparation for norris's last volume the pit and from this point of view it possesses a definite interest but taken as a story it is at once too long and too short he attempted to cover altogether too much ground he might with advantage have brought it to a conclusion some pages sooner 
and yet when the end is reached there remains a sense of incompleteness in the whole collection there is just one story that stands out unique and forceful a memorandum of sudden death this memorandum is a fragment of a journal supposed to be written by a wounded soldier one of a small company of troopers who have been relentlessly trailed day after day by a band of hostile indians through desolate miles of sand and sagebrush until the final attack is made if we agree to overlook the improbability of the whole thing if we grant that a man with one or two bullets in him and with his comrades all dead or dying on the ground beside him could go on recording passing events with the accuracy the minuteness the astounding atmosphere of this story then we must admit that it is norris's nearest approach to the artistic unity of the short story form of norris's longer stories moran of the lady letty was the first to don the dignity of print although the greater part of mcteague antedates it in point of actual composition it is a fact not generally known that the nucleus of mcteague was submitted as part of the required theme-work during norris's period of postgraduate study at harvard university and that it was conscientiously elaborated and polished for four years before it was finally given to the public moran the author's one frankly romantic story was dashed off in an interval of relaxation its swift popularity suggested that an easy avenue to fortune lay open to him for norris had a lively gift for stories of the blood and thunder order and often entertained his friends by reeling off extemporized sword and buckler plots by the yard but from the beginning he took fiction too seriously to debase it and even moran has a certain primitive bigness about it a rhythm of northern runes a spirit of ancient sagas there are whole chapters conceived with reckless disregard of plausibility but that does not make it any the less a strong fresh ideal of the sea full of the dash of waves and the pungency of salt breezes full also of health and vitality and clean hearts and amply redeemed by the brave frank loyal character of that daughter of a hundred vikings moran herself it is probable that in this volume norris had no underlying motive no central idea beyond the wish to tell the story and yet one likes to think that consciously or unconsciously he embodied in moran his ideal of the muse of fiction the spirit of the novel of the future listen for a moment to his own description of this spirit as given in one of his later essays Quote, she is a child of the people this muse of our fiction of the future and the wind of a new country a new heaven and a new earth is in her face and has blown her hair from out the fillets that the old world muse has bound across her brow so that it is all in disarray the tan of the sun is on her cheeks and the dust of the highway is thick upon her buskin and the elbowing of many men has torn the robe of her and her hands are hard with the grip of many things she is hail fellow well met with every one she meets unashamed to know the clown and unashamed to face the king a hardy vigorous girl with an arm as strong as a man's and a heart as sensitive as a child's read these words once again and ponder on them then go back to moran of the lady letty and see if you do not find in it a hitherto unguessed amplitude a gladder sense of the joy of living a deeper pathos in the absolute right the artistically inevitable tragedy with which it ends of mcteague almost enough has been said already it is the most frankly brutal thing that norris ever wrote its realism is as unsparing as d'annunzio's though its theme is cleaner 
it is a remorseless study of heredity and environment symbolizing the greed of gold and dominated throughout by the gigantic figure of the dull and brutish dentist ox-like ponderous and slow necessarily it is a repellent book and yet there is about it that curious attraction which certain forms of ugliness possess when they attain a degree of perfection amounting to a fine art mcteague does not begin to show the breadth of purpose or the technical skill of the octopus or the pit yet there are times when one is tempted to award it a higher place for all-around excellence there is a better balance between the central theme and the individual characters or to state it differently between the underlying ethics and the so-called human interest if norris had never written another book he would still have lived in mcteague just as surely as george douglas brown still lives in the house with the green shutters blix which came next in point of time offers a sharp even an astonishing contrast it is a sparkling little love story clean and wholesome the chronicle of an unconscious courtship between a young couple who begin by agreeing that they do not love each other and then try the dangerous experiment of attempting to be simply and frankly good friends there is an effervescence an irrepressible bubbling up of youthful spirits a naive good comradeship quite free from the embarrassment of sex consciousness all of which gives to the volume a special piquancy of actuality one feels that if it were possible to ask frank norris a few leading questions about blix he would have answered as marian crawford answered apropos of the three fates and with something of the same wistfulness the fact is i put a good deal of myself into that book a man's woman is of all norris's novels the nearest approach to a failure the one that shows the greatest gulf between purpose and accomplishment the central figures are an arctic explorer whose heart is divided between two passions love and ambition and a woman a grand noble man's woman strong enough to subordinate her own love for him to the furtherance of that ambition the discovery of the north pole the story abounds in strong situations of an intensity often bordering on the repellent and the convincing pictures of helpless isolated humanity agonizing amidst the desolate ice plains of the far north cannot fail to win an honest even though grudging recognition but the book as a whole is keyed a trifle too high it is overweighted with too ponderous words and phrases with too tense and too sustained a pressure of emotions one feels that people could not go on living and keep their sanity if life were such a constant blare of passions such a crude raw presentment of primitive humanity born out of time the stone age transferred to the twentieth century and yet like all of norris's works it has its lure its compelling force we will not open the book again we will not read another line and yet wait a moment our eye has just caught another passage listen to this Quote, there were six of them left huddled together in that miserable tent their hair and beards were long and seemed one with the fur covering their bodies their faces were absolutely black with dirt and their limbs were monstrously distended and fat fat as things bloated and swollen are fat it was the abnormal fatness of starvation the irony of misery the huge joke that arctic famine plays upon those whom it afterwards destroys the men moved about at times on their hands and knees their tongues were distended round and slate-coloured like the tongues of parrots and when they spoke they bit them helplessly here in a single paragraph we have the domithos of his earlier volumes they have less of the primordial and the titanic in their composition 
and considerably more of the average everyday foibles and weaknesses one feels that somehow and somewhere he had gained a deeper insight into the hearts of the men and women about him and that this was what owen wister had in mind when he wrote in the pit norris has risen on stepping-stones to higher things and yet the pit is just as much a structural part of the whole design of norris's trilogy as was the octopus it has that same inherent epic bigness of theme a gigantic attempt to corner the entire world's supply of wheat to force it up 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 and hold the price through april and may and june and then finally the new crop comes pouring in and the daring speculator is overwhelmed by the rising tide a human insect impotently striving to hold back with his puny hand the output of the whole world's granaries such are the books which norris with feverish impatience and tireless nervous energy produced in the few short years that fate allotted him they stand to-day as the substructure of a temple destined never to be finished the splendidly rugged torso of a broken statue that is the way the best the truest the only way in which to think of norris's place in american fiction as only a partial fulfilment of a rarely brilliant promise had he lived to attain his full stature there is small doubt that he would have given us bigger stronger more vital novels than the younger american school has yet produced End of chapter thirteen